is Chichester Cinephile, the podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. Hello, we're back again with the Chichester Cinephile podcast. There's still no programme to preview for you, so we will have a cine circle discussion and some streaming recommendations. We have two features this month. If you've seen the film Mank, it might have piqued your interest about its subject, Herman J. Mankovich. You can find out more later. We will also be looking at the significance of staircases in films. Before the current situation, a group of us used to meet up monthly in the Hornet Ale House in Chichester to discuss what we'd seen recently. That was the Cine Circle, and in our version, three films have been chosen to talk about, and this month we will be discussing Boccaccio 70 from 1962, Shirley from 2020, and Man's Castle from 1933. If you want to watch these films before listening to our discussions, we recommend www.justwatch.com to find out where you can do that. It's not 100% accurate and the prices are sometimes wrong, but it gives you an idea. Here is the podcast team. Carol. Hello, everyone. And Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick and I'm the Deputy Education Officer at the cinema. And I'm Sandy and I'm just a regular at the cinema. Now, if you were listening to the Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo film programme on Five Live recently, you'd have heard this. Sandy Guthrie, still celebrating cinema here. Dear Odeon and ABC, I would like to add West Sussex's Chichester Cinema at New Park to your list of independent cinemas worth a mention. The whole point of doing this is, clearly, there's not a lot of cinema action at the moment in terms of the physical building. So we're waving a flag for cinemas up and down the country, and in fact, lots of other countries. Apart from a much more interesting selection of films, says Sandy, than The Big Chains, it's a friendly, non-popcorn venue, largely staffed by volunteers. Founded 40-odd years ago, the cinema shows films that range from mainstream blockbusters to British indies, foreign language art house films, popular worldwide films, documentaries, and reissue classics. In a normal summer, the cinema is home to the largest film festival on the South Coast. With luck, August will see the 29th festival. Producer Simon has added here, I wouldn't bet on it. And there is a French film festival each. Just on that, that's an interesting thing. So that's August. Do you think there can be a film festival in August? I mean, clearly we have no wisdom to impart that everyone is doing this calculation. Everyone is trying to work it out. Can we do a film festival in August? I have no idea. I, I, I'm not making any predictions at all. My, my feeling now is just head down, eye on the ball, every day as it comes. Exactly. Vaccine is rolling out. Hooray and hurrah. Anyway, just final word on West Sussex's Chichester Cinema. There's a main screen, a studio, and occasional outdoor screenings and drive-ins. What's more, there is a shepherd's hut for more intimate screenings. I just love the idea. I mean, around here it would be called Odeon 10, but um, a shepherd's hut sounds so much better. The education team put on regular talks on various subjects, including writers, directors, and actors. Recent subjects have included Alan Bennett, Daphne du Maurier, Jean Renoir, and Tex Avery. Anyway, Sandy, thank you very much indeed. And the Cine Circle is up next. 
Right, the Cine Circle is going to be kicked off by Patrick. was Sophia Loren singing Soldi, 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 or Money, 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 from the Italian anthology film Boccaccio 70, released in 1962. It consists of four films, although the first one, Renzo and Luciana, was cut for international release outside Italy, presumably as it lacked a big-name director or star. Loren's segment, The Raffle, was directed by Vittorio De Sica. Federico Fellini's The Temptation of Dr. Antonio stars Anita Ekberg, reuniting the director and star of La Dolce Vita. And Lucina Visconti's The Job stars Romy Schneider. The title of the film refers to the 14th century Italian author Giovanni Boccaccio, famous for his book of 100 tales, The Cameron, in which 10 people take refuge in a country house during an outbreak of the Black Death, each telling 10 stories to the others during their confinement. The four films here are not directly based on the Decameron tales, but inspired by them. So, Sandy, imagine that you've been confined to your house because of some pandemic. Would these four films have helped to pass the time? Well, funnily enough, I have been. It's it's a quite a long film because with four parts to it, it comes to three and a half hours almost. They are very different. I thought the bit that was missed off the international release by Mario Monicelli, I quite understood why it was left off because I thought it was pretty dull. I thought it was very hammy. I know it was supposed to be a sort of Commedia dell'arte style thing, but I don't think that works on film. Um, It had a great score. I love the jazz in that. But I didn't find that one interesting. The Fellini was a slow starter, but I did enjoy it in the end. And the thing that struck me about it was that it was obviously an influence on Francis Ford Coppola in One from the Heart. If you've seen One from the Heart, the Nastasia Kinski bit of that, where she's uh, on a big neon sign and she comes down and talks to Frederick Forrest. I, I looked at that and I thought, I've seen this before. Of course, it was the other way around, much older. I did enjoy that. I thought the Visconti was like a, basically a one-act play. It was quite interesting. Nina Rota's score, that was fine. I haven't a clue what was going on in the Vittorio De Sica film. I mean, I was surprised because I like some of his films a lot. But I don't know what it was trying to say. The moral compass on it was extraordinary. Even for the early 60s, it seemed strange. Maybe it was meant to be, but that one was completely lost on me. So I liked one quite liked another, didn't understand one, and didn't really like one. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Carol, you didn't manage to see them all, and you saw a slightly different version, didn't you? Yes, I saw, unfortunately, when you go onto Amazon, they don't tell you that this version is dubbed in English. But it was American English, so you just had the feeling that you were in the Bronx rather than in, in Italy, which detracted tremendously from the film. So... Please try to avoid that one at all costs. But what I did see, what I did enjoy, was just the the style of the whole thing. Everyone was so stylish, despite being, in many cases, uh, not exactly um, well off. And the exuberance of everyone. It was a very sort of collective feel of, of living, rather than just, as most of us do, live 
very separate life from community in so many different ways. So from that point of view, I absolutely loved it. The, just the sheer love of life. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I clearly enjoyed this much more than either of you. I thought I hadn't seen it before and I thought it was an absolute gem. The first film that was cut out for international release, I actually loved. I thought it was great. The one directed by Mario Monicelli without the big stars with Marisa Solinas as Luciana, where it, she works for a firm which I was thinking, we watched that film The Assistant last year and a firm that Luciana works for in this, in this film it makes the assistant organisation look like a model of progressiveness. Any woman employee who gets married or pregnant is immediately dismissed Luciana is subjected to really shocking sexual harassment by her predatory boss. But I thought the scene where she tells him what he can do with his job was absolutely great. So I think that was well worth watching. My favourite was the second one, the Fellini, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Chock full of stunning, bizarre images. Wonderful central performance by Pepino Del Filippo as the crusading Dr. Antonio. You've got that opening montage of Rome with jumping convents, schoolgirls, marching priests, a high fashion shooter cycle race, um, filming a sword and sandals movie, water skiing on the time. <laughs> just He just throws everything at it. It was his first film in colour and the colour is extraordinary. And I thought that the, the film's title references the legend of the temptation of St. Anthony, which had been depicted by many artists, including Dali. But there's also clear references to King Kong, in which Anita Egberg, who's the uh, the model on the billboard, steps down from the billboard and comes to life as like a 50-foot tall woman. And I thought there were clear references to King Kong when Eckberg picks up poor Antonio and holds him to her enormous breasts. Yes, <laughs> I, 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 got, I got that King Kong reference as well. There's a science fiction film, isn't there, from the 50s? Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Attack of, the 50. Attack of the 50 yeah. Foot Woman, yeah. Very much in, in that um, genre too. The third one, uh, the Visconti one, I was very interesting. It's actually based on it. That's the only one that was based on another story. It's based on Guillermo Poussin's In the Bedroom. And I, again, thought that was very clever because it retained the original premise of the story, but expanded it. And the central character of Pupe, played by Remy Schneider, is much more sympathetic in the film. And I thought the use of mirrors, it was filmed in this vast apartment with huge floor-to-ceiling mirrors. And a lot of the shots were shot in the mirrors. And I just thought that was superbly done. It was the only one that was set in a high-class milieu. I agree with you, Sandy, that I thought the last one, the Seeker one was the weakest of the lot because Sophia Loren plays this proprietress of a shooting gallery but she has this side hustle as a prostitute and her pimp sells raffle tickets for people to spend a night with her and I kind of felt that De Sica lets the men off too lightly in this. Yeah. I mean they're depicted as colourful salt of the earth characters and they kind of bid for her as though she's a prize cow don't they? <laughs> and, yeah uh, I couldn't see what then, point was being made by that or none. Yeah I don't know. What did you think, Carol? You obviously saw the dubbed version. What did you... Because you're a De Sica fan, aren't you? did like that one because it showed Sophia Loren command the screen. I thought she was really quite extraordinary in this. She is a proper actress as well. The style is very much part and parcel of, of Boccaccio. Boccaccio means big mouth, and everyone does have a very, very big mouth in this. It's part of the exuberant style of this film, and I'm really pleased that I saw them. I'd never seen these films before, and I'm very glad I, I have, and I hope other people latch onto them too. The next film is introduced by Carol. Shirley, which came out in 2020, is based on renowned author Shirley Jackson for her morose nature, as she is for her horror fiction. 
Shirley, played by Elizabeth Moss, is crafting yet another masterpiece when the arrival of newlyweds Fred and Rose disrupt her creative process and marriage to literary critic and philandering professor Stanley Hyman, played by Michael Strohbarg at Bennington College, Vermont, a college town. As Stanley spars to maintain academic dominance over his would-be protege Fred, Rose attempts to dampen her own ambitions and adjust to married life while living under the roof of their fiery intellectual hosts. When the motives of Shirley's literary muse prove elusive, Rose's curiosity and trusting nature make her tender prey for a brilliant author whose only allegiance is to her work. Sir Patrick, what did you think of it? Well, I really shouldn't have liked this film. I'm not a particular fan of Shirley Jackson. I think she's an interesting writer, but uh, the book on which the film is based by Susan Scarfe Merrill, I didn't like at all. I found it inferior in every way to Jackson's writing. And the director, Josephine Becker, I watched her previous film, Madeline's Madeline, which I thought very tedious and pretentious. I really shouldn't have liked this, but I loved it. I was hooked right from the start by its kind of off-kilter weirdness. It looks fabulous. Terrific production design by Sue Chan, who created this unkempt, shambolic interior of the house where disturbed and disturbing author Shirley Jackson and her repulsive university professor husband Stanley reside. And it perfectly reflects her unnerving personalities. I thought the cinematography was also excellent by Norwegian Sterla Brandt Grudlin. And the avant-garde music score by Tamar Killy was was also very good at setting the scene. And the cast, excellent. Elizabeth Moss in the title role. Her demeanour ranges from catatonic to a sort of gleaming malevolence. Michael Stuhlberg, also outstanding as a predatory egocentric husband, drooling over his young female house guest, which was another good performance by Odessa Young. I thought it was great. It reminded me extremely of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is a favourite play and film of mine. Very, very similar situation and dynamics. And, uh, you know, the university professor and his wife and the house on the campus, the young couple as house guests, excessive consumption of alcohol, claustrophobic atmosphere and the getting the guests aspect. But although there were those similarities, I think Shirley was very different from the Albee play and film. And I thought it was very successful and absolutely riveting. It's interesting you mentioned the cinematography and the music because, I mean, I thought it looked lovely, but I got fed up with all those extreme close-ups and looking over someone's shoulder with their shoulder in it and looking through cracks in door I thought that was overdone and I was thinking oh, let me see what's going on and the music I thought was so obvious you know it's like saying don't forget this is a, a horror tale the other thing I couldn't quite work out was who was gaslighting who or are they all mad anyway and I just as I thought oh yeah he's gaslighting oh no actually she's gaslighting him or what's and I just thought they were strange I won't say I didn't enjoy it because I did enjoy it but I, I'm not quite sure if I enjoyed it as much as I should have done, maybe. And I was a bit confused by it uh, also. Carol, did you find it confusing or were you on board? It's a very claustrophobic film because it does take place 99% of the film in the house, which I thought was fantastically dressed. Everything was cluttered, which showed that um, their minds were completely and utterly cluttered as well. I think all of the um, acting was really quite extraordinary. But Michael Stolberg um, is just one of those actors who's so good at hiding behind his characters that you don't recognise them. 
And you should, because when you think of what he has done, Call Me By Your Name, The Post, Blue Jasmine, Trombo, The Shape of Water, you know, he's being in all of these major films, and yet he remains hidden. You don't go to see one of his films necessarily. I thought Elizabeth Moss was completely and utterly perfect for the part, completely over, over the top. She has these wonderfully watchful eyes and she can turn on a sixpence. Her, her mood swings are quite extraordinary to watch. And it is, of course, based on a, on a true story, which the character Shirley is trying to put down in her latest novel. So all in all, I, I thought it was a very watchable film, but quite a, a disturbing one. I gather it was mainly fictitious, in fact, based on the characters rather than anything else, wasn't it, Patrick? If you've read the book. One might assume that the novel is a biography of Shirley Jackson, whereas in fact it's a novel, it's a fictional um, sort of imagination based around the character of Shirley and her husband. So it's not supposed to be realistic in any way. I think the film is very stylized and it is, I think, deliberately disorienting in terms of the, the camera work and also the characterization of uh, the main characters deliberately kind of makes you wonder what's going on and what game are they playing now. But I, I kind of really enjoyed that aspect of it. And here's a clip from Shirley. So when's the baby due? The baby? Oops. Was it supposed to be a surprise? You should have told me that, dear. Well, I hope it's yours. <laughs> of course it's his. February. Hmm. Right, darling? I would really rather discuss something else if you don't mind. February. Huh. Did you tell him you were knocked up before the wedding? And just by the by, if you're interested in Shirley Jackson's work, there's an adaptation of her most famous novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which is currently on Netflix. The final film for this month's Cine Circle is from 1933, and it stars Spencer Tracy and Loretta Young. Man's Castle is from just before the Hayes Code set tight moral standards for Hollywood. Directed by Frank Borzage, it's a Depression-era film set in a camp for the homeless, based on a play by Lawrence Hazard. Tracy is Bill, a restless character who almost accidentally picks up Trina, Loretta Young and they start to live together. Her devotion to Bill seems to unnerve him, and he treats her pretty appallingly. The themes would probably have fallen foul of the code, which came in a year or so later. It's from a time when films were being churned out almost as quickly as they could be shot. The director averaged two or three a year in that period, and Young made nine in 1933. There's a grittiness to it, despite being clearly a backlot set. Carol, did you enjoy it? I'd never seen it before, and I think it could be also entitled Man's World rather than Man's Castle. <laughs> but anything with Spencer Tracy has got to be a good film, although it is incredibly dated. The girlfriend that he meets up with can always see the good in him, but it's definitely a man's world. This is in desperate, desperate times, and how she manages to see the good in everyone and everything is really quite something. Patrick, did you think it had aged well? Oh, yes. I, I have to say, I mean, this, this film cast a spell on me over 40 years ago in the Scala Cinema Club in Charlotte Street, which was only there for less than two years. 
before Channel 4 took it over. And in those two years, I managed to see a whole load of old films that I'd never seen before, including this one, which is almost, as you say, almost but not quite forgotten nowadays. Unfortunately, the only print that survives was butchered by the Hayes office on a re-release, and the, the original one hasn't sort of survived. And even the one we've got is not in good condition at all. But I just love this film. I think Spencer Tracy is superb as Bill. He combines a you know constant verbal brutality with moments of great tenderness. And Loretta Young, who's not an actress that normally excites me, I don't think she was ever better than in this, exuding a, a passion that I never really saw in, in other films. And great support from Walter Connolly as the ex-preacher, now a night watchman who conducts their unofficial marriage whilst packing a gun. Then the nighttime skinny dipping in the river, Tracy earning money by stilt walking, the new stove, he gets uh, Tracy fleeing in a panic when he finds out she's pregnant and then changing his mind and coming back. And then the final departure in the freight train lying in the, in the straw. I I just think it's absolute gold. Brilliantly directed by Bozagi and with great subtlety and wonderful cinematography from Joseph H. August, who was a favourite of John Ford, which you can still appreciate despite the poor quality of the print. But I appreciate it is a, it's a very old film and it is very much of its time, but it utterly transfixes me. Carol, did you think that the quality of the film detracted for you? I'm afraid it did. Yeah, I watched it on, on YouTube and it was almost as if they were behind a muslin curtain all the time. And so you were trying to pick out the faces and I was quite determined to watch the whole thing. But it took a, a degree of faith in order to say something about this film for the podcast. <laughs> but there's no doubt about it. When you see Spencer Tracy or hear Spencer Tracy's voice, he does really command such uh, respect and, and love for this kind of, of actor who, I guess, Tom Hanks is maybe the person who's, who's taken his shoes, but maybe that's a leap too far. But uh, from that point of view, it was very, very good. And there's some really wonderful wisecracking lines in it, like two of the people in the Hoover Flats where they live as a sort of commune. One woman says to, to a man, this ain't murder, it's house cleaning. And I think it's just absolutely wonderful, that scene. So it's worth watching through the Muslim curtain just for that line. I think it is a film for people who are willing to look at very old and slightly dodgy quality films. But I thought it was worth it. The performances were great, if a little bit 1933, but that's what you get. I thought one of the most interesting things, as I said in the intro, was that it was filmed in the Depression about the Depression. So there was no romanticism of it at all. It was a pretty hard life they had. And see people living in those conditions and saying that they're happy to do so because it's better than any of the other options I thought was very interesting. Yes, it's of its period and the quality is of its period and everything is of its period. But if you're happy to go along with that, I thought it was a very satisfying film and I was fascinated to see it. And here's a clip. Who let you out? What are you doing here? I, uh, I was just admiring that stove. That one. It's beautiful, ain't it? And cheap too, only five dollars. Well, that is five dollars down and only two dollars a month for only 12 months. No interest. No interest is right, as far as I'm concerned. I don't go for anything on the installment plan. You know, in a year, that stove would be out. A year? You think I'm going to hang around this town a year? I never play any town more than 30 days. I've been hanging around here too long as it is. Oh, it's such a beautiful all-around kind of a stove. Forget it. Of course, we could start with one of the smaller ones. By paying only $2 down and only a dollar a month. Forget it. 
What's for supper tonight? Stew. No kidding. And still to come on this month's podcast will be our streaming recommendations and our features on Mank and Staircases. Patrick will be talking about Mankovich next. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! It is one of the enigmas of cinema history that an alcoholic hack writer with no other remotely comparable credit to his name won an Academy Award for his work on one of the most revered films in cinema history, Citizen Kane, the opening to which you immediately recognised, I'm sure. In fact, it is such a puzzle that many have preferred to believe that the director and star Orson Welles must have been the sole author. According to Richard Corliss, The work of Herman J. Mankiewicz, the subject of the recent film Mank, directed by David Fincher and starring Gary Oldman, reveals nothing more than dull consistency. In fact, his younger brother Joe, who also had a career in the movies as a producer, writer and director, was much more successful overall, winning two Academy Awards each for A Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve as writer and director. Mankiewicz was born in New York in 1897 to German-Jewish immigrants and became a successful newspaper man in the early 20s. In 1925, he was enticed to Hollywood to write titles for silent movies. His film career began well, but he appears to have regarded his writing as a mere means to finance his passions for drinking and gambling. Fincher's Mank, based on a screenplay by his late father, makes the case for Mankiewicz as the primary author of Citizen Kane through the use of non-linear narrative, which dramatises events between 1930 and 1940, leading up to the release of the film in 1941. In this scene, Gary Oldman as Mankiewicz encounters Marion Davies, played by Amanda Seyfried, the mistress of William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper tycoon on whom the character of Charles Foster Kane was based. She is on a movie set where she is tied to a stake. I need a favor, but you're going to have to promise you won't laugh. Given the state of the world, a tall order. You're going to. I just know you are. I have got such a hangover right now. There's just a fighting chance I won't. I'm being burned at the stake, and I am dying for a ciggy boo. (laughs) There. God's punishing you. Watch those stairs. They're treacherous. Every moment of my life is treacherous. Any last words? Welcome to San Simeon. I've written worse. You've never seen it? No, but George Bernard Shaw is right. How's that? It's what God might have built. How do you have the money? The film makes plausible the idea that Mankiewicz's inside knowledge of Hearst and his entourage gave him the inspiration to write something astounding, witty, sophisticated, and superior in every way to both his previous and subsequent output. But it is, of course, a fictional work. And in any case, was the rest of his work so mediocre? Let's take a look. (laughs) 
Man of the World, the 1931 picture directed by Richard Wallace, is unusual in the Mankiewicz oeuvre in that he is the sole credited writer and it was not based on any other source. So one can reasonably assume that it is all his own work. Although a drama rather than the comedy for which he was best known, it is also a very typically Mankiewicz tale about a crooked newspaper reporter played by William Powell who has left the USA for Paris, where he and his two accomplices played by Wynne Gibson and George Chandler publish a scandal sheet from a basement. Powell is the front man, blackmailing wealthy American businessmen on trips to Europe, caught letting their hair down. In this clip, he returns from another such escapade, having extracted $2,000 from yet another victim. Fancy seeing you here. You must have forgotten you were supposed to meet us here two hours ago. Oh, so that was it. Somehow I uh, couldn't recall what it was I had forgotten. I hope your fit of aphasia didn't include Harry Taylor. My dear Irene, armed with nothing but my trusty fountain pen and galley proofs, I stalked Mr. Taylor to his lair and bagged this. Too bad you can't have checks stuffed and hung above the fireplace. Did he make any fuss? Fuss? He almost kissed me. As a matter of fact, I'm a friend of the family now. Guess where I've been? At the Ritz bar. No. Well, then I can't guess. Dining with Taylor's niece and her young man. Oh, that's the people you were with at Papa Jules. You mean you met the girl, his niece? Exactly. Well, we are lucky. It would be absurd to compare this film to Citizen Kane, although it does share the theme of corrupt journalism. But it is a little gem, displaying Mankiewicz's gifts for sharp dialogue. The Lady Eve, written and directed by Mankiewicz's friend, Preston Sturges, explored very similar territory ten years later, but as a comedy rather than a romantic drama. That's very nice, but do you mind? Not quite so loud. There'll be people in there talking, you know. Thank you. That was Billy Burke as Millicent Jordan, New York society matriarch, giving instructions to the small Hungarian string orchestra she has hired for the dinner party she is giving for the fabulously wealthy Ferncliffs in George Cukor's Dinner at Eight, released by MGM in 1933, and arguably the most prestigious film of the 30s for which Mankiewicz received a screen credit. It was a Broadway hit the previous year, authored by Mankiewicz's friends and fellow Algonquin Round Table members, George S. Kaufman and Edna Ferber. Producer David O. Selznick dumped the entire cast of the stage show, bringing in multiple big star names, including the Barrymore brothers, John and Lionel, and Marie Dressler, together with Wallace Beery as a boorish entrepreneur and Jean Harlow as his vulgar wife, here having what's known as a little domestic. You've been acting very strangely lately, my fine lady, and I'm not going to stand for it. Yeah, and so what? So what? I'm the works around here, and I'll give you orders what to do. Who do you think you're talking to? That first wife of yours out in Montana? Now you leave her that out of this. That poor mealy-faced thing with a flat chest that didn't have nerve enough to talk up Shut to up. You, washing out your greasy overalls and cooking and slaving in some lousy mining shack? No wonder she died. Say, I'll suck well, you, you in a minute. you can't get me that way. You're not going to step on my face to get where you want to go, you big windbag. Listen, you little piece of scum, you. I've got a good notion to drop you right back where I picked you up in the check room of the Hot and Tot Club or wherever the dirty joint was. Oh, no, you won't. And then you can go back to that sweet-smelling family of yours, 
back of the railroad tracks in Passaic and get this. If that sniveling, money-grubbing, whining old mother of yours comes fooling around my offices anymore, I'm going to give orders to have her thrown down those 60 flights of stairs. So help me. The film was a huge success for MGM and still stands up extremely well today, plotting a daring course between comedy and tragedy, and is probably the best of all Mankiewicz's films other than Citizen Kane. However, a reading of the original play reveals that while Mankiewicz and his co-writer Francis Marion did a very professional job of adaptation, pretty well all the dialogue was lifted straight from the play. After the success of this film, Mankiewicz's career fizzled out. He had far fewer credits in the late 30s compared to the first half of the decade, and the films were uninspiring. Those that have survived to be seen today, such as After Office Hours with Clark Gable, and It's a Wonderful World, not to be confused with It's a Wonderful Life, but also starring James Stewart, are increasingly feeble attempts to imitate Capra's It Happened One Night. An exception was The Wizard of Oz, for which he was hired by MGM to write the first draft. It was his suggestion to expand the opening Kansas section, which is much briefer in the book, and to film it in a greyed-out black and white. However, he was fired after two weeks and received no credit on the finished film. After Kane, there was a temporary recovery in Mankiewicz's fortunes, and Sam Goldwyn nabbed him to write the screenplay for a film tribute to an iconic American sportsman. That was Betty Avery singing Irving Berlin's Always, the Our Song of baseball player Lou Gehrig and his wife in the film about Gehrig, Sam Wood's The Pride of the Yankees, for which Mankiewicz received his second and final Oscar nomination. Released the year after the death of Gehrig, aged 37, from motor neurone disease, with Gary Cooper starring, it was a great deal more commercially successful than the Wells film but its sentimentality and slow pace have not worn well. Watching it, one longs for the crackling cynicism of Mankiewicz's films of the early 30s. There were to be no late masterpieces from Mankiewicz, although rather than the series of forgettable romantic comedies which characterised his slump of the late 30s, the 40s saw his career peter out in an equally forgettable series of romantic melodramas, including A Woman's Secret, directed by the young Nicholas Ray. He died aged 55 in 1953. So, did he really write the screenplay for Citizen Kane? Despite the mediocrity of much of his other work, I am strongly inclined to believe that he did. That the alcoholic haze and cynicism lifted for a few weeks in 1940, allowing him to conquer his self-destructive urges and create a work of absolute genius. It makes a good story anyway. Now let's see what streaming recommendations we can come up with. First off, it's Carol. The Jig, set at the outbreak of World War II in Suffolk as dark clouds gather for war, tells the true story of Sutton Hoo's remarkable archaeological Anglo-Saxon treasures found in the skeleton of an 88-foot ship and follows Basil Brown, played by Rafe Fiennes. He's a humble man of working-class origins who was taught how to excavate archaeological sites by his father and grandfather before him and who wears his extraordinary knowledge lightly. 
Edith Pretty, Carrie Mulligan, a widow who owns the huge estate, lives with her small son, Robert. She hires Basil away from the Ipswich Museum, where he works, to dig up the mounds on her property. But Basil doesn't have high hopes. These sites are being picked over by people for centuries, he informs her. She offers him more money than the museum, so he gets to work. At first, Basil utilizes just a small ad hoc team, but after the ship is revealed, throngs of people descend onto Suffolk, wanting a piece of the action. Walter, the general manager of the cinema, says that this film will be screened when it is possible to reopen, but in the meantime, you can catch it on Netflix. And here's a clip. Should we take a look at them then? Right. Things like this are usually done through museums. Yes. But when I approached Ipswich, Mr. Reed Moore said that with the war coming, they couldn't embark upon any new ventures. Well, they have their hands full with a Raymond Villa. Yes, he said you were working on it. I am. He told me you were a difficult man. <laughs> Did he know? <laughs> Unorthodox. And untrained. So that's his reference, is it? Well, I'm, I'm not untrained. I've been on digs since I was old enough to hold a trowel. My father taught me. Perhaps Reed Moore just wants to keep you for himself. <laughs> I don't know about that. My first choice is only short, but it is spectacular and a must-see for cinephiles and jazz lovers, if you ask me. Available for free on YouTube, Jam in the Blues is 10 minutes of pure joy. Made in 1944, it captures a jam session with Lester Young, Sweets Edison, Barney Kessel, Joe Jones, Illinois Jacquette and others playing three numbers. The music is fantastic, but it's also the look of the film that makes it stand out. The stark black and white contrasts are startlingly beautiful and cigarette smoke never looks so good. The cinematographer was Robert Burks, who later was director of photography on Vertigo and North by Northwest, among many other classic films. I can't recommend this more highly. We've been discussing jazz musicians in films for a future feature, and I'd forgotten that I used to have this on VHS, and it's such a joy to see it again. Find it on YouTube, and the best quality is the one labelled Jam in the Blues 1944, Lester Young Oscar-nominated short, because that's what it was. There's a second film with Young and Billie Holiday, which is also wonderful, but so far I've only found a copy which is less than perfect quality. If you can see past the blurriness, that's also worth a look. Now, Patrick. Veteran Australian director Peter Weir has not made a film for over 10 years, but if he never returns to a film set, he will still leave a remarkable body of work including his early masterpiece, Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975, which is now available on BFI Player. 
This period drama about the disappearance of several schoolgirls and a teacher on the titular day out is known for its fabulous cinematography by Russell Boyd, but it also features some excellent performances, including Rachel Roberts as Miss Appleyard, the headmistress, here addressing the party as they prepare to set off on their ill-fated trip. Good morning, girls. Good morning, Mrs. Appleyard. Well, young ladies, we are indeed fortunate in the weather for our picnic to Hanging Rock. I have instructed Mademoiselle that as the day is likely to be warm, you may remove your gloves once the drag has passed through Wood End. You will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the rock. Once again, let me remind you that the rock itself is extremely dangerous, and you are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration, even on the lower slopes. I also wish to remind you that the vicinity is renowned for its venomous snakes and poisonous ants of various species. It is, however, a geological marvel upon which you will be required to write a brief essay on Monday morning. That is all. Have a pleasant day. And try to behave yourselves in a manner to bring credit to the college. The next film is introduced by Carol. Ramallah is only 10 miles north of Jerusalem, but for Palestinians living under occupation, the distance seems much longer. In Maya, a thrilling and perceptive new documentary from director David Ossett in 2020, the normalcy of everyday life faces the constant threat of disruption. That's the conundrum facing Musa Hadid, the overworked city mayor at the centre of the drama that often dips into bureaucratic black comedy and unnerving suspense as Hadid's exasperated attempts to keep the peace dissolve into a constant swirl of frustration. This compelling fly-on-the-wall film follows him as he deals with civic duty and Israeli oppression, which is shown suddenly getting a lot more stressful in 2017, when President Trump announced his recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital moving the U.S. Embassy there from Tel Aviv. Hadid feels strongly that this move emboldened Israel's military to be more menacing in Ramallah. A clear-eyed look at an extraordinary subject, Mayer makes essential viewing out of one politician's quest to preserve dignity in the midst of bureaucracy. Do catch this 2020 film on Curzon Home Cinema. I'm not quite sure that everyone can imagine what difficulties you face as a mayor in Palestine. We don't have our own currency. We cannot visit Jerusalem. We are surrounded on all sides by Israeli settlements. Well, we mentioned Tom Hanks earlier. The latest Tom Hanks film is Greyhound. And as far as I can see, it's only on Apple TV+. With a screenplay by Hanks, it's set in the Atlantic during the Second World War, with Hanks commanding a ship escorting a convoy to Britain through a pack of U-boats. Based on a C.S. Forrester novel, The Good Shepherd, it's a kind of naval procedural, with minimal backstory, and while it offers no real surprises, it does what it does very well. And it's gripping, and you do feel the tension of being on a bridge during the crossing, and most of the film is set on that bridge. While reminiscent of all those 1950s war films, that's no bad thing, and the special effects are better than those in the old black-and-white dramas. Here's a bit of it. Fire is there! 
your choice next, Patrick. Der Jingo Triantur ist so lend, o gegen Tillindanele. Die swingt, die swept, die Mädchen, die Tralla, die Alla, die Trey. That was the Delta Rhythm Boys, to which jaunty tune, three girls break into a spontaneous dance outside a cafe in what was perhaps the most memorable film released over the past year in the UK, veteran Swedish auteur Roy Anderson's About Endlessness, currently available on Mubi, comprising about 40 or so brief, enigmatic, mostly unrelated vignettes, each lasting a minute or two, comic, tragic, wistful, devastating. The film also features the most stunningly beautiful production design and cinematography that I've seen in a very long time. Still to come is a walk up and down a few staircases. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Some of the simplest things in cinema, a door, a window, or even a staircase, can carry incredible meaning. Filmmakers in history have had the ability to give everyday objects key narrative significance. In the same way that doors have been used as a visual shorthand for isolation, loneliness and voyeurism, staircases have been used to convey attention-getting stairway scenes, some on staircases so long they barely seem real, like the famed designer Escher's never-ending one. Staircases can represent power, those at the top are often considered to be powerful, while those at the bottom are powerless. Others can be simply demonstrating character. In Joker, it's Joachim Phoenix's title character, doing a bonkers dance on stairs in the Bronx, in a scene so iconic that the location was a pre-Covid clogged tourist attraction. In Parasite, the recent multi-award-winning South Korean film, it's a never-ending series of staircases that the film's central characters descend during a torrential downpour. The Parasite sequence comes during the movie's climax as an impoverished family desperately races from the luxurious home of their wealthy employers down multiple flights of stairs to their subterranean home, which is being flooded with sewage. Staircases, like bridges, almost always function as a metaphor for a space that is in between two worlds. In this case, a world of privilege and a world of poverty. And the lengthy, sodden parasite scene forces us to descend, along with the family, from a carefree world into a world without hope. Its Oscar-winning director called the project a staircase movie. Using this as the overall motif that runs through the entire film, he created both the parks and the Kim's homes from scratch, built on outdoor lots. The director must, or might, 
have been thinking of a sequence in the 1927 Seventh Heaven, a silent American film, when he mapped out his scene in Parasite. This one creates a metaphor that's the exact opposite of Parasite. A man who works in a sewer rises all the way from ground level to his apartment, a haven on top of a tall building. It all happens in one take that helped the director win his Oscar, the first given for direction. And if you haven't seen this stunningly beautiful and imaginative Grand Budapest Hotel, you might wish to revel in scenes of this Hotel de Luxe story set in a spa town in Central Eastern Europe. I was lost in the charming, nostalgic, complicated world of Monsieur Gustave, the hotel's fastidious concierge, played with great humor by Ray Fiennes. How may we serve you, gentlemen? By order of the Commissioner of Police, Zabroka Province, I hereby place you under arrest for the murder of Madame Celine Villeneuve de Goffin Taxis. I knew there was something fishy. We never got the cause of death. She's been murdered. And you think I did it. Hey! Monsieur Gustave's world not only mirrors the troubled history of the era, but also subtly echoes the luminous settings of La Belle Epoque. Standing in for the Grand Budapest Hotel itself is an abandoned Art Nouveau department store in Görlitz called Görlitzer Warenhaus. Director Wes Anderson found the space while location scouting for the movie and promptly fell in love with its unique historical architecture. The exquisite stairways, elevators and atrium of the building, which are all put to wonderful use. So what do staircases represent in film? Well, a lot of things. In Rocky, they represent an underdog overcoming an obstacle, feeling triumphant that all of his hard work has paid off. In Sunset Boulevard, they represent the status of a faded, silent-era Hollywood star descending from on high to greet the commoners, the paparazzi, below. I can't go on with the scene. I'm too happy. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio, making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. In the stunning, unforgettable 1925 Russian film, Battleship Potemkin, they represent the unfair battle between an oppressive government and the proletariat, with troops bearing down on the fleeing masses, guns and bayonets in hand, a baby's pram tottering down each step along the masses facing the trigger. There are plenty of other films from which to draw examples, but the metaphors in the imagery aren't too difficult to come up with. 
Staircases connect the bottom floor to the next floor, and in the same way, they metaphorically connect individuals or demonstrate the obstacle ahead. You know that classic shot of a character looking up at all of the flights of stairs they have left to climb. They can show enlightenment. When a character reaches the next level intellectually, stairs could serve as a good vehicle to represent that. You saw this in the final scene in The Truman Show. speak. I can hear you. Who are you? I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. And directors and studios aren't shy in coming forward with staircase in the title. Witness the stairs, the staircase, dark at the top of the stairs, staircase murders, people under the stairs, and I bet you can add to this lofty list. But what set me on the stairways in film's search was Anthony Minghella's 1999 film, The Talented Mr. Ripley. When Tom is endeavoring to hide from the police after the murder of his wealthy friend Dickie, who he has murdered and has taken over his identity some time before, he runs up a lofty apartment staircase and room and listens to conversations taking place in the lobby below. Minghella, as I see it, plays homage to director René Clément's first Ripley film, Place Soleil, which came out in 1960 with Alain Delon as Ripley, Minghella reprising the scene step by step. Most of Alfred Hitchcock's films feature staircase and several of them are filmed in quite dramatic ways to drive the plot or emphasize the film's themes. There is a moment in Frenzy in which the camera steadily plans away, as if in horror, from a stairway in a house where a murder is being carried out. Stairways figure prominently from different angles, including top-down and bottom-up in Vertigo. The idea of the staircase as a spiral appears in quite a few Hitchcock films, like The Lodger. One wonders if Hitchcock had as much of a fetish for staircases as he did for women with blonde hair. Although the interest might have been sparked by his admiration for German expressionist films like the 1920 silent horror film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which features some amazing staircases that helped highlight a character's mental illness. Psycho, 1960, shows the terrified Martin Balsam after an old woman pushes him down a rickety staircase. It might not seem like anything special anymore, but the scene still works and remains memorable. It's one of two moments in the movie in which a big-name star suddenly disappears long before we expected them to. You know the other one. When Balsam, as an investigator trying to figure out what's happening at the Bates Motel, climbs those stairs, it's almost as if he's bridging the gap between reason and insanity.
The staircase in the film Titanic was more than just a film set. It was a legitimate oak staircase made in Mexico for the film and built to withstand a lot of wear and tear and water. Gone with the Wind, the 1939 Oscar-winning film with an American Civil War background, has many key moments on the grand staircase that seems to occupy about half of Tara. Our protagonists tripping up and down in differing clothing and moods. When Rhett Butler, drunk as a skunk, belligerently confronts Scarlett O'Hara about her undying love for Ashley Wilkes, he carries her up the iconic red-carpeted staircase to their bedroom. It's not that easy, Scarlett. Turn me out while you chase Ashley Wilkes, while you dreamed of Ashley Wilkes. This is one night you're not turning me out. Sometimes the sequences and staircase scenes go astray in the editing room, such as the one in the famed 1927 Fritz Lang German film Metropolis. When two characters, Freder and Rotwang, leave Rotwang's laboratory to observe Maria's secret meeting place, they descend a spiral staircase that spirals clockwise. When they reach the bottom of the stairs, they are seen descending a spiral staircase that spirals counterclockwise. This is repeated when Freder uses the same staircase later in the film. A Matter of Life and Death, 1946, has possibly the granddaddy of all staircases which David Niven finds himself on. Technically, it's somewhere between a staircase and an escalator, which is a whole nother list, led perhaps by the amazing escalator shootout in Carlito's Way. But this one earns recognition because it connects this world with the next, literally a staircase to heaven, peopled with some of humanity's all-time greats. What about him? Lincoln. Well, it's hardly fair to drag him in. I don't believe he'd be prejudiced. Plato. How would you like to be defended by Plato? Nobody knew more about reasoning than Plato. He was 81 when he died. He might be too old to think love important. Do you think so? Batches. We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back in a month or so, either with a programme to preview for Chichester Cinema at New Park or some more streaming thoughts. We'd love to hear what you think of the podcast, so please do send your comments and suggestions to walter at chichestercinema.org and please mark it podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next month, it's goodbye from Carol. Bye-bye, everyone. From Patrick. Goodbye, everyone. And from me, Sandy. Goodbye. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Find us at chichestercinema.org.